Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, good friend JD Ross, co-founder of Open Door. JD, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. I'm excited to be on it. JD, there's a lot we want to get into today, but w- w- one of the things that I think about when I think about you is mental models. You you have a lot of them, you get excited about them, you create your own, you're inspired by others. When did you first get into this idea of mental models? Maybe let's get meta for a bit. Like, how did you first get into mental models and where did it come from? Charlie Munger is the uh, partner of Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway. And he had this incredible talk he gave, I think at Harvard in like 1993 or 95 or something, where he talks about worldly wisdom and expounds on mental models for basically an hour and a half. And it's an incredible talk. For me, it was helpful because I'm not very smart. And so having patterns to make me smart is helpful. And mental models let you basically make sense of the world and lets you kind of create this rich tapestry of experience that you have and see how it all hangs together. Mm-hmm. And so I found these different patterns really useful and they come from all kinds of disciplines. They can be structured like something like uh Hanlon's razor, razor, which basically says, you know, go off, of, assume everyone has good intentions Yeah. to really one-off situations uh, that you can point back to and say, oh, this actually rhymes with this thing, even though it's very different. Right. And so you can apply that again. And so for me, it's just made my life make sense. Totally. Let's take a few examples. One of them is always invert. What do you mean by that? And how does it do your life? Yeah. So this comes from the Carl Jacobi. He's a mathematician who was talking about how to solve for proofs, which is when you get caught, basically invert the problem. Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett start using invert, always invert to say, uh, why shouldn't we invest in this company? What's going to go wrong? And I think that's probably closer to how I use it, which is when someone brings up a situation, it, it's easier to say like, okay, I'm taking what you're going to say and I'm going to be deliberately contrarian about it. And just what if the opposite was true? Like I'm going to try and defend the opposite of what you just said or what I think is true. Uh, and it, it allows you to uncover some really interesting ideas. One of my favorites from someone else is uh, Jane Jacobs, who's an urbanist from New York and kind of defended the West village from evil intruding Robert Moses, who's also fascinating and amazing basically pointed out that for a while, everyone assumed that cities were not possible without agriculture, that you needed to have agriculture in order to enable cities. And she said, no, no, no. Cities are what enabled agriculture. It's backwards. You had to have people there with these ideas. And then all of a sudden you needed a way to feed them. And so for cities to grow, you needed to create agriculture. And everyone's like, well, that's crazy. But then you think about electricity. And obviously we had cities before electricity. And just because today, if you turned off electricity, cities would die. You needed those ideas, right? And so like having that model to just switch what you are basically to invert that thinking allows you to come up with these new ideas and solutions and in retrospect may be obvious. Totally. I can't let the Robert Moses comment slide uh, for, for much reasons. And it's a good seg- segue into, you know, what you care about. You know, Open door, uh, obviously it's one of the most exciting companies uh, of, of this era. Um, real estate company think, you know, has a lot to do with cities. You've been thinking a lot about cities in the past year. You've been thinking about charter cities. You just mentioned Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. What has been most interesting to you about your study as, as you think about cities, you think about Robert Moses, what have you learned? What has been most surprising to you? Yeah, I think I'll even come back to like, another, this isn't necessarily a mental model, but more of a principle that I think that bottoms up beats tops down almost every time and that people know what they need and they want. Robert Moses is incredibly effective, but he's very much a tops down person. And at the time he did a lot of admired work in New York by basically reshaping the entire city and adding highways. But in retrospect, it's not the most livable part of New York, to say the least. And as I think about cities, so for those who don't know, Open Door is a uh, real estate technology company that lets people instantly sell and buy homes. So you trade in your house like you might trade in a car. And it just makes it much easier in those moments in life where you may need to buy and sell a house. You can take away that hard transaction and just do the part of life you're in. Usually having a kid or everyone's going off to college, stuff is happening. We make it easy. This kind of kicked off my interest in real estate and I think in cities in general. And what fascinated me most, what really got me going is that there are going to be so many more cities in the future than there are today. So in 2050, which is not that far from today, it's 30 years from now, you're going to have coming like half a billion people moving into cities that don't exist yet, mostly in Africa and Asia. How do we make those cities better? 
because cities are the engine of economic growth or the engine of innovation, and they basically never die. If you look back through history, uh, you can like n- literally nuke a city, and within 50 years, it's basically right back and going at it. Countries around cities change and die all the time, but cities don't. And so the extent you can create a really good... And also, I'm a big believer also in founding stories. And so I think the founding stories of a nation, of a city, of a people stick with it forever. And so to the extent you can create really good founding stories that have good culture, you can actually do a lot for humanity over a multi-thousand-year time horizon. Right. And what types of cultures or principles or founding stories would would you be interested in seeing from emerging cities? Yeah. I'm hopeful that we can have more equity built into the cities of the future than the past. Equity by? The people who live there rising with the success of the collective. The collective city. The most successful new cities, I would argue, actually are almost nation states, but they're Singapore, they're Hong Kong, they're sort of the Asian tigers, Taiwan. But you also have, you know, really large success stories within China in the last 50 years. These cities are incredible. They've created tremendous amounts of wealth for the people of those countries, but Hong Kong is owned by like nine families, like, and they're just paying rent to this city. That, that's not a good outcome, or it's a great outcome, but it's not the best outcome. It would be much better if the community that actually lives in the cities are able to participate in the economic engines. And I think that's true in the U.S. as well. And so I'm putting some thought right now into how do you actually build that in structurally? How do you create the incentives to allow for that? And what does it look like? Some people are trying to solve it via crypto and, you know, create sort of different incentive mechanisms where more and more people can have ownership or align incentives in in commons or in, in things that they didn't historically have. Uh, you're not spending a ton of time there as far as I know. What does it look like for you? Let's use the Bay Area as an example of like sort of a failed a failed political body for housing. So San Francisco, it's incredibly expensive if you don't live here to buy a home. It's basically incredibly unaffordable. It's something like 80% of people can't afford to live uh, here on their income. They have to basically commute in. In, in the San Francisco Bay Area, you, you've seen prices go up tremendously over the last 10, 15 years. And it's priced out a ton of people. And in the pricing out, the bad part of gentrification, people say, oh, gentrification, and they usually think it means an area becoming more wealthy. It's, it's not about displacement. And I don't think displacement is necessary. And displacement only happens when you don't have ownership built into the community. Now, the community actually has a lot of power. And I think local community groups exercise that power today in the only ways they have available, which are to basically protest any change. And I think actually it's a, that's a function of the way that our cities are set up, where you have a building department that handles housing, and you have a transportation department that handles transportation, an education department that handles education. I actually think what England did uh, back with David, David Cameron was really interesting. They basically said uh, any group of neighbors or areas can declare themselves a neighborhood, and then they can set their own zoning and rules, uh, as long as they have like a 50% basically vote of the people who live there or something. And everyone was like, that's crazy. It's going to be, everyone's going to be a NIMBY. No one's going to want to build anything. And actually it didn't turn out that way at all. They just negotiated for concessions that worked across the board. They said, okay, we actually want more housing, but we don't want ugly corporate housing with fake cheap facades. And if we're going to build more housing, we need to have a better transportation system or road. And by the way, I don't want 50 kids in my daughter's class. And so we need a new school too. And they're able to kind of pull all this together and say, okay, we're going to extract taxes from here and build this thing here. And all of a sudden you saw more building. Yeah. Uh, I, I think being able to have more local action that's actually cross-cutting yeah. would, it, there's something interesting there. I don't know the answer yet, but there's something about enabling neighborhoods to actually ask for everything they want instead of piecemeal because piecemeal everything breaks. If our friend Kim Mai Cutler was here, what might she say? Kim Mai would tell me that I'm wrong, um, but I don't know how or else I would have said something different. <laughs> Kim Mai is much smarter than me about this. Yeah. I, but I think Kim, Kim Mai is really great in that she understands the community yeah. groups and spends the time with them everywhere she goes. So there's this woman, uh, Catherine runs this group called T- the Tech Equity Collaborative. And I'll, I'll use them as a great model of what I think the future might look like. Square just bought or they're moving into a building in Oakland. They're moving 2,000, eventually going to have 2,000 employees there. And as part of that deal, they're going to have, they have local employment kind of minimums where they're going to employ people who actually already live in the neighborhood. They're, they're going to support education programs. There's all, there's all these sort of neighborhood, I don't want to call them concessions, but neighborhood benefits that come from someone coming in with this money. And I hope that with the new opportunity zone legislation, that's going to start dumping tens of billions of dollars into and hundreds of billions of dollars across the country into communities like Oakland, we start seeing these communities actually demand that sort of 
positive version of capitalism where all ships are raised. Yeah. And it is interesting before this podcast started, we, we were talking about how a friend who joined open door initially was, um, not necessarily anti-capitalism, but, uh, perhaps confused or maybe she was anti and you had to, uh, <laughs> spread the good word. You know, it's funny because I, I have, I have friends who are anti or on the fence. What is the good word? <laughs> how, how do you typically convince these people? Most of the things people, when they argue against capitalism, they point to things that to me aren't capitalist at all. Like they'll point to healthcare or they'll point to housing and they'll point to student debt, right? This, these are actually distortions. Um, they're really big distortions. And if you don't believe that, then try and start a hospital and be like, oh, I want to create a facility where we reset broken bones for really cheap. You just can't do it. And that's not, that's not a free market at all. I'm not like a crazy libertarian, but I do think that like when capitalism is working, people just are, fundamentally capitalism is I want you, I want something that you can do better than me. And I'm will, I'm excited to give you basically my money, which is basically what I've earned for doing something that someone thought was more valuable. And you're excited to take it in exchange for the thing you want to give. And then positive surplus because of that. Right. Like you're happy and I'm happy. And the capitalist system in general is just a scaled up version of that. It's just hundreds of trillions of those interactions happening all the time. Then there's like sort of like if you move up the layer of abstraction, you have something like, I'll tell, I'll tell a story from Open Door. At Open Door, we buy and sell homes. But while we buy those homes, we have to actually fix them up. We have to get them listed. We have to get them clean. We have to keep them clean. We have to pay insurance brokers. And so all of a sudden now there are hundreds and thousands of vendors and service workers who've created businesses on top of Open Door. There's this woman, Heather Macy, who when we first started buying homes in Phoenix was unemployed and a single mother and was looking to kind of get back into work after a divorce. And she applied on Craigslist to effectively clean our toilets and clean homes. And we just kept giving her more homes. As we grew, she just kind of kept giving her more and more work. And we had no idea how hard she was working. We kind of were busy on our own and they kept getting clean. And we later learned that she was spending about 18 to 20 hours a day cleaning our homes. Oh my God. And was like on the edge of breaking. And then she hired someone to help her. And then she hired someone else to help her. And now she has 50 full-time employees working to clean open-door homes across six markets across the U.S. She's an incredible entrepreneur. Forget taking care of her family. She's doing incredibly well. Wow. She's amazing. Yeah. And all she needed was a platform where she could launch off of. And she's one story, but there's many stories like this. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can tell the same story for probably a lot of people in Airbnb. You can tell the story for a lot of different companies that come out. That's capitalism in its best form. Right. And to close the loop on why you're excited about charter cities, the charter city movement is be and why it enables a more positive form or equitable form of capitalism is because. So I'll, I'll, uh, I was spent two weeks in Africa at the end of last year. My friend Moya is building a city there and he's incredible. It's called Nkwashi. And one of the things I was surprised by, by going, when I was going through Zambia and South Africa was just how much Chinese money is being flooded into the continent for projects that the African nations can't afford. They're going to be basically, they're saddled with debt. They're going to either need to default or have inflationary debt crises to get out of it. And at the end of the day, China's going to own huge swaths of the infrastructure of Africa. And that's, I don't think that's good because unlike, you know, British colonialism, I think the neocolonialism of China is going to be Chinese people actually run all the factories. They run mineral management. There's no local development that happens that seems to be happening today. And there's no intention of the Chinese to even do it. The, the manuals that they bring are written in Chinese. My hope is that charter cities can actually, again, bottoms up beating top down, provide the capital and access to international markets and a good legal system so that people can lift themselves up. I have a really strong belief that people know what they want, that they're entrepreneurial at, at heart, that we know what's valuable to the people around us and we can just make it happen. And I think charter cities are, are a tool and a way to help people help themselves. Yeah. Let's talk about Open Door for a bit. You started Open Door six years ago? So we started Open Door at the beginning of 2014. So it's been five years now. Wow. So it's you and three other co-founders. How is your relationship, when you think about co-founder relationships, you know, four is a lot of co-founders. How have you thought about how those relationships evolve over time and how you thought about how to grow, strengthen, build those relationships, navigate tough times. How have you thought about co-founder relationships or relationships at Pandora? I don't think they're always supposed to be easy. I think they're sort of similar and I hate doing the comparison to partner, like a spouse or something, but they're not supposed to be easy. They're supposed to be productive. And I think when you're picking co-founders, one, uh, find compliments. This is probably also true for spouse. People 
you know, naturally gravitate towards people just like them, but it's better to find people who compliment you, who have skill sets that compliment you. In our case, we have, I, I mean, we're very lucky, right? We have an incredible executive and product leader with Eric. We have Keith, who's one of the most famous operators in Silicon Valley. Ian, who's one of the best data scientists and data science leaders who built out a lot of the fraud teams and fraud analytics at Square. And then me, who, eh. but I think the, the key piece is that we had our areas of expertise and we leaned into those and th- that's how you can build trust. I think a lot of co-founder problems happen when there's overlap. I think a lot of my struggles, even with working with Eric, were in the areas where we overlapped. He's product, I was product. And not having clear communication about who owns what. At, at a small company, it's easy because you can you can thrash things and everyone can adjust. When you're 1,200 people like Open Door, you can't do that. You need to have really clear ownership and mandates and you need to kind of keep the chip steady. And so the relationship over time becomes one of more more space. And what do you think they saw in you? Because you were, what, 23 at the time? Yeah, when we started Open Door, I was 23, almost 24. And what do you think they... Because they theoretically could have started at just them three and bring co-founder is a big Keith boy, Eric, et cetera. What do you, what do you think they saw in you slash what was your superpower? You'd have to ask Keith what he saw in me because Keith always has this mysterious way. Yeah, of, he can uh, identify talent. Yeah, I have no idea what how Keith does that. When we met, we basically just argued over fraud loss rates for an hour at a square party. And then he tried to hire me then to lead risk, which was I was utterly unqualified for. <laughs> I, I think I, I started a few cash flow businesses before. One is a moving comp- moving storage company. I was running product at a company called Adapar down in the South Bay. I think he, Keith looks to trajectory and he looks for kind of breadth of his, I don't I don't know what he looks for. Yeah, but how do you identify what is your superpower? I actually asked some friends what my superpower was during my birthday last year, and because I don't I didn't know. I think it's actually very hard to self assess on what you're good for me. It's hard to assess on what I'm good at. I'm much better at pointing out the things I'm bad at. And they said that the two things that came up over and over again were that I was very good at, again, this like mental model piece, like kind of building up this set of models and this tapestry of models to distill complex problems into simple ones and just getting to the truth and getting, or getting to the right answer and getting forward. And the second one was um, around kind of prioritizing the, the mission over self and getting other people to do that too. I think actually, this is an interesting point. I think one of the common failure modes for leaders, especially in medium and larger companies, is not when they put themselves first. It's when they put their team first over company. Wow. And so it's very important to find leaders and not just find them, but also like motivate them and teach them how to put like mission over team over self. Because when mission comes first, everyone can win. And sometimes that means actually letting your team hang. But they're not going to do that if you don't do that yourself. It has to start with you. Let's talk about mental models. What, as you've sort of, you know, in the beginning, it was just you co-founders and then it scaled to multi-hundred person. Is it multi-thousand at this point? We're uh, 1,200 full-time. What mental models have helped you scale as a leader? I don't know if I have mental models that have helped me scale as a leader so much as under like these different sort of stages of growth in a company and different models that help each one. So I think when a company's starting off kind of pre-product market fit, everyone sort of develops their own style, their own path. Where things get, start to get crazy is in that, I call it the band of brothers and sisters phase. It's that 30 to 80 people. It's a really fun time. Basically, everyone's having a great time every day. They're all convinced they have the best company in the entire world, that it's a career high because everything's easy. Everyone knows each other. It's awesome. That's when your culture really develops. That's when everyone starts to kind of find their place within the company, especially the early employees. Everyone's hyper productive. There's way more work than people. And then you enter this hyper growth phase. And that's where everything starts to break. Around 80-ish people in my, you know, limited experience is when kind of this starts to crack. And why, why is stuff cracking? Just communication breakdowns, just expectations? A lot of things change. One, you start hiring very quickly. And so the, the average age of an employee is like two months. <laughs> and so onboarding becomes really important and clarifying your core values becomes important. And of course, all the old people who have been there for, you know, six months or a year and feel like they owned this special thing in this special moment kind of feel that slipping away. And as a leader in that moment, there are a couple of things that really help. I think one is to just basically sit down with each of the people who have been there. These I call them the flag bearers. And basically give them like, hey, you're, you have two jobs. Your first job is to do your job. And your second job is to teach everyone who's new what it means to be at Open Door, what it means to be an Open Door person. What do we value? How do we give feedback to each other? How do we communicate? What do we not allow? 
uh, what does it mean to start and end with the customer? Show them, teach them. Because if you don't, then the culture is going to change and we're going to lose this special thing. And I think that that gets lost in a lot of companies at the phase and that, that leads to some kind of crashing and failing or at least a lot of people leaving who shouldn't leave and you lose a lot of that that good. We did a good job of making sure that we had a very like structured onboarding, not run by the top executives, but by run by the people who've just been there and knew, knew things well. And how have you thought about the founding myth of, of Open Door and how that, you know, uh, we like to say that there are multiple founding stories that sort of emerge over time. How, how have you thought about that? So Open Door was conceived in Keith's brain about soon after PayPal sold to eBay. And he went to Peter to raise money, Peter Thiel. And he pitched basically what would become Zillow. And Peter said, that's a terrible idea. It's incredibly boring. Come back with something better. <laughs> and Keith said, well, what if we buy the homes? And Peter said, yes, perfect. It's exactly right. Great. We just couldn't do it at the time. There wasn't enough data. You couldn't uh, value homes accurately. And I, I think the, the secret insight to Open Door is actually that homes are not different. Most homes are basically the same. And you can value, as long as you can value them, that set of homes really accurately. In our case, it's basically the middle 80% of homes in America. Uh, you can build this business. And so Keith pitched this idea to Eric, my other co-founder, who was the CEO, because Eric was pitching Keith on a different business. And Eric said, no, I'm going to do the business I'm pitching you, but thank you. Eric then sold that business to, Tr started, sold it to, Tr to Trulia and then came back to Keith and said, okay, I want to do the, you know, the idea you pitched me. I've been thinking about it for two years. Keith and I had spent two years at that point trying to find the right team to start this. And so pulled the three of us together, and then we finally convinced Ian to leave a small startup he was at and join. Um, Ian, funny enough, had taken the job that I turned Keith down for at Square to lead fraud. And that, that was that's sort of the founding story and how we came together. Yeah. And the, the great Keith line about what he looks for in businesses is that every great business is sort of predicated on a secret. So what, what secret was Open Door predicated on, and what secrets to scaling have you guys uncovered? Yeah, I think the, I'll cover some like abstract and more tactical things I think were kind of our secrets. I think the first secret, of course, is what I just said, which is that home, you can predict home prices. You can actually value a home sight unseen using just a computer and you will be basically spot on with what the market would say your home is worth. And if you can do that, then you can actually buy a home for that price. And so like that's sort of the core insight. Now everyone knows that secret because we exist. But in, before that, when we you read the press from when we announced what we were doing, everyone thought we were completely insane. And they were like, oh, like Keith or Boy brings us back to 2008. And just, it's not the, it's not obvious until it, until it works. A second secret was that we set a much, much bigger, scarier vision than we even intended to start off doing. If you're like, oh, we're going to buy homes instantly using the internet, that's a starting point. But we just kept scaling it up. And now it's, we're going to let people instantly move with one click. It's going to be easier than renting. They're going to always know exactly what their home is worth. They can pull money in and out of it. They can get a mortgage at a tap of a button. They don't even need to worry about what mortgage is. It's just going to be a thing that moves with them as they move. Uh, moving is just going to be easy. And that's going to enable econ economic opportunity for anyone who has a new job offer across the country. They're no longer locked in their home, et cetera. Right? You just want to set the biggest, scariest vision you can because people who are really great only want to work on things that are great. And so whenever you have your vision, just get bigger. Just keep pushing it because great people want to work on great pro problems. This is sort of Peter Thiel's bit in zero to one about why you should never start a restaurant because it's basically just as hard as starting a billion dollar company because you're just not going to be able to hire the people who would run a great restaurant. A second secret is playbooks. So Open Door is way more like Tesla than Instagram, much to everyone in the company's chagrin. It's really operationally intensive and there's not much room for error. And so there's a huge burden to make sure everything we do, we do right, or else we're going to mess up the largest moment of a customer's life likely. Yeah. Right. They're moving, they're homeless. They're about to move homes right. from one home to another. It's got to be flawless. Uh, it's got to work and it has to work every single time. So I, I tweeted once that playbooks rule everything around me, which is a terrible uh, Wu-Tang Clan butchered reference. At Open Door, it's true. Playbooks rule everything around everyone. Uh, we need to document what works and what doesn't. We need to give people ownership over that playbook. We need to refine it over time. So we have playbooks for how we procure carpet, for how we change the data science models, for how we refine our market assumptions or handle a hailstorm that damaged a hundred roofs or an incoming category five hurricane in Florida. I think every one of these playbooks allows you to refine your business over time and not have to reinvent the wheel over and over again. And I think I don't see enough companies in Silicon Valley 
building out these playbooks, um, especially the operational companies. Another secret is we call it the Hulk mentality. And so given that you're building a operationally intensive business, that's very hard. You need to build a team that is willing to handle a tremendous amount of stress uh, and not just handle it, but thrive in it. So we call it the Hulk mentality, which is as things get harder, do, do you back down? Do you quit? Do you request vacation or, or do you get stronger? Like the Hulk, as you kind of beat him up, he just gets stronger and stronger and stronger and you'll never die because the harder you beat him up, the stronger he gets. It's maybe not the best right. analogy in these days and age where working hard is supposed to be a bad thing, but in our business it's necessary. So we, we look for people who have that Hulk mentality. We're talking about being a leader at scale and you, you mentioned how, you know, post 80 or 90 people, you can't know everybody on a first name basis or, you know, or on a, sorry, on a deep intimate basis. How has the tension been scaling to a much bigger company between who you have to be for those, for those people? I think one of the hardest lessons for me as we grew open door is that when you have that kind of band and brothers, band of brothers and sisters in that phase where there's less than a hundred people, you have relationships with every single person. And those relationships are deep and they see you on good days. They see you on bad days. You see them on good days. Do you see them on bad days? So you, you know who you're dealing with. And you're able to kind of show up as you are and just get work done. Past that point, you can't do that anymore. You only have impressions. And so that one way you show up in that one meeting that one time, maybe the only time someone in that team will see you face to face and see you work for six months or maybe ever in their entire time at the company uh, outside of, you know, all hands. And so you have to show up and you kind of have to leave yourself at the door. What are things you wish you knew uh, in your first year of Open Door that you learned in your last year? I think I was way too naive early on. I wish I understood the importance of relationships with everyone on the team and invested in those even more outside of work. I wish I knew the importance, the difference between a builder and an executive. And yeah, what was the difference? So I think entrepreneurs often are builders and they start off as builders because you have to be, you have to, nothing is there and you need to put something there. And so I bias towards hiring people who are builders because I, that's what I like to do. And at a certain point, you need people who you're not going to measure based on their ideas. You're going to measure based on the team that they bring on, the org they build, and the outputs. And so like, you're measuring them on their ability to create good inputs, their team's ability to create good inputs, and not just their ability to solve problems. That's a very different type of hire. And looking for someone like that and being able to assess them is a skill set I just didn't have. Right. About half a year ago, you went to take a sabbatical. Talk about, this, about what you learned on. Yeah. So last year, uh, after about four and a half years at Open Door, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next in the company. We had hired an executive who'd taken on my role, um, and he was doing an amazing job and sort of had like some greenfield. And I said, well, I'll take a couple months and travel and think about what I want to tackle next. And I had never traveled more or less ever at all. And so, you know, there's a, that kid in college, that first weekend, you meet the person who's never gone to a party yeah. in college and like they're in the hospital the next week because they just like didn't <laughs> understand what they're doing. I just like that with, tra I just like traveled. I traveled so hard. Yeah. I was going to travel until there was no more traveling left. Like, yeah. and, uh, so I, I just circled the, basically circled the world like twice in wow. 10 weeks. And I don't think I learned anything. <laughs> If I had to, <laughs> that's the best. I learned that that voice in the back of your head that's telling you, go out, see the world. It's amazing. Uh, like what you're doing isn't good enough. Yeah. Is wrong. You shut that voice up. Yeah. That voice is completely nuts. And you, you need to shut it up sometimes by just going out and doing it. I don't regret it, but it was, I definitely didn't learn anything from it. The title of this episode is going to be, I don't think I learned anything. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think I learned anything. Yeah. I, I think. Go for it. If you haven't traveled, travel yeah. so that you don't have this like existential dread. Yeah. But basically, and this goes back to what we were talking about, I think before about 2019 resolutions, T 2018 for me had a fair bit of this like novelty seeking piece. And I just don't think it was actually yeah. worth it. I think that all the value in life comes from the places where you can let those roots kind of settle into the ground and those deep friendships, those deep relationships, that deep work you get from focusing on one problem for a long time. That's where fulfillment comes from. And it's interesting because right now you are, you're an interesting position. You're co-founder Open Door. You have the resources and the brand to pursue whatever you want to pursue and uh, have a big impact there. What are the, the mental models or criteria by which you are thinking about how to pursue your next step? 
I was talking to Keith about this, and one of a piece of his advice is your first idea is probably your best idea. Because you've been thinking about it long Because you've been thinking about it. It's been ruminating in your head. So for me, the answer is find everything that sort of goes around that first idea and talk to all the people who are doing things that kind of touch on that. Find uh, friends who are working on problems that kind of have been involved. Read as much as you can about that area. And has the first idea come to you yet? The theme is there. Cool. The theme is there. The answer isn't there yet, but I think there's a lot, the pieces are starting to come together. I, I, I really believe that cost of living, and, I, and I, don't, I haven't heard it framed this way from anyone besides Joe Lonsdale, is that like cost of living, that whole bucket is the major issue that actually drives a lot of other unsettling Say more about that. Why? effects in the US. Because we're, we're not making less money. We're actually making more money than we've ever made before. We are not unemployed. We have lots of employment. But everything's more expensive, and not everything. Like in, in consumer electronics are very cheap. Uh, the iPhone's very cheap. Entertainment is cheap. The things that are more expensive are housing, healthcare, transportation, and education. Those are the major areas where everything else has gotten cheaper, and those four things have gotten much, much more expensive on an inflation-adjusted basis. And why? Because if they hadn't, everyone in America would feel fantastic. If you were spending, you know, imagine living in San Francisco and spending, you know, a thousand dollars a month on a house and you'd, you'd feel great. But when you're putting 80% of your paycheck into the basics, you just, you feel poor. So I've spent barely any time, you know, researching this, uh, unlike you, but what I hear is that the problem is entrenched interests, misaligned incentives, and the solution is build more housing. If I spent a lot of time researching, what's something non-obvious I would learn or, how would my opinions change, perhaps? What have you learned? Uh, I, I think those are the right buckets. It is entrenched interests and it is incentives. <laughs> Which is a big term. To yeah. Be I mean, well, like, if it's like, what's the root cause of every problem? Yeah. Incentives. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Like, people are incentivized in different ways. I, I, I do think, and like, build more housing would be really helpful. It's like, what kind of housing where? We have tons of land in California. We have plenty of ability to solve this. I think one thing you'd learn is that there are probably five or six seemingly good ideas that destroyed California housing. One is this back in 19, in the seventies, there was this bill called prop 13 and prop 13 says, when you move into a house, you're not going to, we're not going to keep raising your property taxes. We're going to tax you at the price that you paid because we don't want, you know, a rising cost of the area to kick you out of your house. That seems really good, right? But now we have people who have owned these homes for 50 years. They bought them for, you know, $70,000 and they're now worth two and a half million. And we have no property tax base in California. And so whenever there's a recession, we go bankrupt. And we, though, by the way, they don't even live in that house. They rent it out and they still pay. It. So they're now landlords. And for some reason, commercial property also counts for this. So we have no tax base on commercial property. And, and so th- that's sort of, and so now no one's able to, you know, sell or move out of their house because if they do, they're going to get taxed up the wazoo. Um, so that's one thing, right? And it disincentivizes anyone from building because if you build, then it's going to change the neighborhood character and we're fine as we are. We don't need to do efficient use of land. Um, so that's one. Then you have like a bill like the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA basically lets you file for any like large development. You're going to have someone just file a somewhat trivial lawsuit, frivolous lawsuit against you. And just delay that project indefinitely about some environmental con- fake environmental concern, right? And you just can. Um, and it's asymmetric warfare basically on development. <laughs> and so you, you have all these different, and there's p- plenty of examples of this. Um, there are these zoning boards that basically are only incentivized to say no or make you change things left and right or just hold it up. Uh, neighborhood review boards where anyone can stop a house from being approved. And so there's all these like simple solutions to this stuff, right? One is Prop 13. Well, like first let's like actually tax commercial development. And then by the way, if you're using your house as a, if you're gonna be a landlord, like maybe you shouldn't do this and maybe property taxes shouldn't be stuck at the level, but maybe you should increase slowly. Um, there's all these different possible solutions, but basically like California just needs people to understand the cause and then approve the legislation that would change it. And if, if, yeah, if you could wave a wand and pass any legislation, what, what would that look like? I would start with Scott Wiener's SB 50, which is a kind of refresh of last year's SB 827. It basically says, at a state level, we're going to upzone all the areas near mass transit. And that will create a tremendous amount of new housing and kind of slow the problem. Um, the second thing I would do is I would approve by right construction. So there's assuming you meet certain 
standards and criteria, you shouldn't need to appeal to build. You should just be able to do it. I, you know what? Th- those two things alone would be really great. I, I would love to, to try more experiment. I would love to have an easier entitlement process where you could create new cities or upzone certain areas or by local approval and have more experimentation there. But I think that the work Scott Wiener is doing in California is a really, really good start. Oh, and Approva in 2020, they have this bill called Split Roll, which does what I said about Prop 13, getting rid of it for commercial. You should definitely vote for that. Cool. And do you think that that, you know, going back to charter cities, do you think that that solves some of the root issues or is it from Band-Aid? What I think will happen if we do this really well is not necessarily that California will get much cheaper in the long term, but that it will get much, much richer because we are, we have this massive economic engine. And so while like supply and demand right now are so out of whack, but I think what you can, you'll see is that it'll be easier to buy more public housing. It'll be easier to buy more, create more affordable housing, but average wages will just go up a lot. Uh, you'll see, yeah, maybe food will be more expensive, but you'll be making a lot more money. And so I, I think we're just going to create this incredible engine of wealth, similar to compare how much things cost today versus like, you know, the 1880s. Yeah. Everything's more expensive, but we make, you know, hundreds of times more. That's totally fine. Yeah. And it is interesting. I mean, assuming a wide skill set, which, which you do, which you do have the sort of question of what you want to do next, sort of like, how do you measure the impact that working in housing can have relative to working in healthcare, working in AI, working in crypto? Like, how, how do you sort of, it's such a daunting, ta- how do you even approach the task of, oh, how do I make the biggest impact? Yeah, this might not be the right time to ask me the question because I'm still figuring it out. I, I've settled on, okay, what can I do to have, like, how, how do you create the greatest increase in human welfare on a on a 1000 year time horizon like not in 10 years not in 10,000 years or 100,000 years but okay call it like a thousand years what would that look like all right and then what would it look like in like 100 years what would it look like in 50 years and if you can kind of walk through those different things you at least get a, a set of options you can pick from i think on a thousand year time horizon the answer is absolutely cities because i think they last that long and i think that the culture that you set up there last that long. And I think this is the first and last time we're going to have these cities be built in the world because of the massive population booms in Africa and South and uh, Southeast Asia. And so this is like a one-time shot. And that's a pretty amazing opportunity if you know how to do it. I don't know if I'm the right person for it right. though. And if you were to do the, uh, the bull case for suburbs or, the, or the, to invert or the, 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 you know, argue against yourself, how would you do that? I would say that I am a white dude in San Francisco and white people going to Africa to save the continent has a pretty poor history. Um, <laughs> and so I should probably sit where I am. Uh, and I'd argue back against that saying, no, 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 I'm trying to not save anything. I'm trying to prevent people from coming in and doing the same thing. Right, right, right. I like that three layers deep. I want to play a little game of long and short and maybe we'll start with San Francisco. San Francisco, my long San Francisco. I'm long the Bay area. I'm actually very long Oakland. So Oakland, for a variety of reasons, actually, there's a pretty funny story. There's a real estate family, I just learned this from my friend, that looks for signals that an area is about to take off. Yeah. And one of the signals that they look at is where Hasidic Jews and gays are moving. <laughs> and Oakland yes. has a, an influx of Hasidic Jews and gays. Wow. And so that that's, you know, that's science, right? Yeah. You can't can't argue with that. Uh, <laughs> just that more economic growth happens where they move. Yeah. That's wow. like where, that's how you know an area is about to yeah. basically get large amounts of development and influxes of new jobs and areas. So o- Oakland is seeing that. Um, I, I also think this new opportunity zone legislation. So for those who don't know what opportunity zones are, basically the tax cut bill of 2017 created this new idea of opportunity zones. And it will, be, if you, let's say you made a million dollars in some business and you're about to, and you just sold it. Normally, you'd be taxed on that million dollars right away. Opportunity Zone says, hey, actually, you can reinvest that into certain areas in the country that haven't seen economic growth or opportunity, and we're going to defer taxes on that for 10 years. And even better, we're going to actually not tax any gain you make in those Opportunity Zones if you hold it for 10 years. And that million dollars gain, we're going to lower it to 8 by 15% if you hold it for at least 7 years. And so there's huge incentives to start investing in opportunity zones. And most of Oakland is an opportunity zone. West Oakland is basically all opportunity zone. And while you see them scattered throughout the US, like Oakland's right across the bridge from San Francisco, which is the largest engine of growth arguably in the world. It's hard for me to imagine there's not going to be a huge influx of capital going into Oakland. Politics, long short. I am very long local politics and short national politics. Say more about that. America has like seven cultures. 
they're going to compete with each other. We're going to find lots of reasons to always have half of us be mad. I think it's just boring and people are getting bored of it. And there's so many things that we want to make better in the areas we actually live. And so we're going to start, I think people are just going to start taking care of their house more. And I, and I think this, like the political, I think that at least in the coastal areas, Donald Trump's election made people far more politically aware. And I think that that's going to trickle down locally much more than it is going to trickle up nationally. Yeah. Education. Uh, long term, I think that homeschooling is going to, is going to be a very long term trend. What's going to happen that's going to enable that? Or what's the bottleneck constraining that right now? So I, I, I was talking to a, uh, someone I know about this and his idea was, let's just do Airbnb for homeschooling. Like, let's make it really easy for anyone to basically turn their home into a either school or micro school. And like, here's a package on how exactly to educate in these different ways and a guidebook for it. People, people who are homeschooled outperform basically in every dimension. They outperform on all standardized tests. They outperform in like personal happiness. They are much cheaper. Turns out socialization is really easy. You just need to have them play like two soccer games a week. <laughs> like this stuff, all these, uh, the counterpoints to homeschooling seem to fall apart when you actually look at those who have done it well. And it's not some like religious thing anymore. And so, so I think that it's going to be just someone who packages it so that it's as easy or easier than sending kids off to private school. Yeah. One thing you've been short on is snark. Why are we having what it seems to be more snark? And what's your, what's your response to that? Yeah, I think snark is a contagion. Actually, in startups, I think the single worst thing you can have in your culture is snark. And it, it usually develops right as you enter that hyper growth phase. Snark is when people don't feel empowered to make change. And so they fall back on sarcasm. And so snark is sort of a symptom of people not knowing what else to do. Right. And how do you get rid of it? The reason I think it's a contagion is that once it sets in, it's very hard to undo. And so you need to wipe it out quickly. And so if you have snarky friends, you might just have to find new friends. Uh, like snark is dangerous. It's And if bad. you're listening to this and you're a snarky person, how do you not be snarky? Uh, the world is amazing and <laughs> everything is great. It really yeah. is. And I think that every time you're feeling like the world isn't great, you're probably being like manipulated by right. someone who has an incentive to convince you otherwise. Yeah. Spend more time with your friends. Mm, I like that. Exercise, fitness, cults. <laughs> Long berries, short rumble. Barry's is the greatest innovation in fitness ever, and you can find me yeah, we there just all the time. A, a team Barry's, and I, I will find you at the next one. What makes Barry's so great? Okay, so I think it's uh, it's just rooted in science, much more than all the other exercise How's routines. That? Uh, that high intensity interval training where you switch between like int- high intense running followed by intensive weight training is it just, it makes your body better. And like, just put on an Apple watch and go to Barry's or do the Barry's type workout three times a week. And I promise you, your resting heart rate is going to go down. Your VO2 max is going to go up. Yeah. Uh, you are going to sleep better. It's just, it's like a perfect workout. Yeah. For one whole year, I went four times a week and I was in the best shape of my life. Uh, I was actually too jacked. I had to, I had to take it easy, but I I noticed that about you. (laughs) I was like, Eric, (laughs) yes, I'm worried about you. You're too jacked. (laughs) Yeah, statements that have never been said to me. <laughs> One thing uh, I really admired about you is you have sort of excellent criteria, or you just surround yourself with really great people, great mentors and peers in a work capacity, and then also great friends and, and peers in a in a personal capacity. Before sort of talking about specific individuals, what do you think has led you to success in that in that area in terms of just finding great people to work with and and to be friends with? To what do you attribute that that skill? Oh, and what what criteria do you maybe have for that? Who do you like to surround yourself? I don't want to sound cruel, but I think it's about just becoming more and more intolerant every year of people who don't make me better. Yeah. And I don't want to sound too selfish either because hopefully I'm right. making them better as well. Right. Like, I think everyone, at least in you know Silicon Valley, has pretty much agrees that you become the average of your five closest yeah. friends. And then they go out and hang out with that same person that like is kind of toxic. Right. <laughs> just stop hanging out with that person yeah. and create the time to spend with the person you yeah. admire. Just tell them you're busy. Yeah. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. just don't say anything. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. just, you're, you don't really owe them anything. Right. So I think just becoming more and more rigorous about picking those, and for me, maybe it's not five, but the, the 20, right. 25 people that I kind of keep spending time with. Uh, and what types of people make you better? Is it people who inspire you through their example? People who are super compassionate? I mean, what types of people do you look for? I think if you're able to make New Year's resolutions, you know what type of people 
right? You know who you want to be. And like, let's make this the year you become the person you know you're able to be by surrounding yourself with people who are already like that. And you're obviously contribute the same thing back to them in various ways. We all have our own goals and we're not, we're not perfect, but. So I want to name a person in your life and then I want you to talk about so one thing you've learned from them or one thing that makes them sort of, you know, uniquely special. Uh, how about Joe Lonsdale? So I first talked to Joe in college. I don't even remember how we got, we got exactly connected, but Joe instantly taught me to think bigger. Uh, I was running these small cash flow businesses and I was very happy. And then he ruined my life by convincing me that I was personally responsible for saving Western civilization. And I swear that's actually like basically the conversation we had. And so I, I'm far more civic minded because of Joe. I'm far more ambitious because of Joe. He's the one who originally got me out of Silicon Valley. And what's your, what was his argument? How would you convince the listener that they are solely responsible? <laughs> well, you are. Um, <laughs> you are actually solely responsible for saving Western civilization. We, we all are. Uh, and liberty and prosperity are great. I, I think a starting point is just studying of history. He sent me a book by Carol Quigley called the, I think it's called The Rise and Fall of Civilizations by a former Georgetown professor. Great book. And basically convinced me that we were at the precipice of the fall. Wow. This is, you know, right after 2008. So he wasn't <laughs> wrong, but that we could fix it. Yeah. And that, you know, there's a, there's a way out. And as long as we just do the right things and we build the future we want to believe in, I wish I had a superpower. I don't. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll contrast that with a more calm, low key and someone who really likes to take it easy. Uh, Keith Raboy. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he listens to this. Yeah. Keith has been. Keith's been coaching me for, you know, the last four years. He's taught me most of my good operating habits, uh, operating habits and, you know, one or two bad ones. Keith's almost always right, but he usually can't actually express why. And so he's sort of this like state machine for the right answer. Well, you'll come up to him and then he'll give you an explanation and you're like, there's no way that that's right. And so you start arguing with him and it turns out that his explanation isn't right. You're right. You should still listen to him. And I basically spent four years re reverse engineering why he's right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe someday I'll teach him why he's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know I got to say, uh, I've learned a ton from Keith as, as well and feel super lucky. H how about uh, Delian? Delian's my roommate. He's Keith's chief of staff. I think it's really important to find peers who you're able to uh, push on and also get pushed back from, and it's comfortable. And Delian and I try very hard to push each other. And that requires a level of like disc uncomfortable honesty that requires a level of trust. Yeah. And isn't, what is your definition of a friend? Some people say it's someone you enjoy spending time with. Some, some people say someone makes you better. Someone, David Brooks has a definition where it's someone you can't spend time with and not laugh. Like you can't take seriously in some capacity. How do you define friend? Oh, I like David Brooks answer. That's great. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's a person who, a friend is someone who I'm pulled to. How about your mom? Anything like her? Yeah. My, my mom is, uh, like my bedrock. Whenever anything is going good or bad, she's my first call. And I, I think there's a sort of uh, monoculture of sorts in the tech world that she's completely separate from. And so whenever I need someone who just like kind of like be like, hey, you're completely disconnect disconnected from reality. That's really helpful. You should have people who are able to tell you when your reality is totally different from the rest of the world. Yeah. And then transitioning to people from reality, I know you're inspired by Ben Franklin. What have you taken from him? Ben Franklin is the greatest American of all time, in part because he's created these myths around himself, uh, and we're great storytellers. What I've taken from Ben, so I'm gonna, I'll tell a story about Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin would wake up at you know 4:30 in the morning. He would wheel all of his newspapers and deliver them all, and then he would go back to sleep. And then he would get back up at the crack of dawn when everyone else was getting up, and he would stack up a bunch of newspapers in his wheelbarrow while everyone was awake and walked down the street and do the last run so that everyone saw him delivering the newspapers. I think it's really important to not just be very good at what you do. It is important that you do that, but it's important that you also tell the right stories. I think humans are tool builders and storytellers and Ben Franklin is America's greatest storyteller. Yeah. I love that. What, what makes a great story? Like as you think about advice for people who are trying to tell great stories, how, how should they be thinking about that? I think the first thing you should look to is how many people repeat your story, right? And this is, this is true when you're starting a company, actually. One of the most important things we decided with Open Door was that it had to cut through the clutter. Whatever the three word version of Open Door was had to be something that someone wanted to listen to, even if they couldn't care about 
you know, startups or something else about that day. They just had to, to tell the story because it sounded so interesting. Elon Musk is amazing at this. He just knows how to cut through the clutter. You know, we're going to put 16 rockets at the back of the new Roadster so it has SpaceX mode. Whoa. We're going to launch my car into space. Whoa. Like, I think surrealism is radically undervalued in society. And I think like it's actually the, I have a friend, Riva, who I talked to about this quite a bit. We believe, yeah. Also podcast guests. Okay. Surrealism. So say more about it. So back in like the nineties, we were, it was pretty cynical early nineties. And the thing that basically broke the cynicism of America were these late night talk show hosts like Jon Stewart coming on and, and, you know, we can't repeat the same trick twice, but basically like, I think this sort of surrealist fun mischief is a, he is an incredible antidote to pessimism, cynicism. Fun always wins. Yeah. And it's interesting. Fun, fun always wins, but you, 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 there's a fine line between, you know, sort of fun and snark. Yeah. Or, or it can, it can turn into that if too much, if too, uh, cynical, I guess, even in a silly way, like if just meme, and maybe South Park sometimes is guilty of this. I don't know. I think a lot of talk shows have actually slipped into snark and that's why they're maybe not as entertaining as they used to be. Like I think Trevor Noah is very snarky. John Stewart was not snarky. He was entertaining. He was right. fun. There's, there's an optimism about we're going to fix this and like poking fun at something, yeah. which isn't defeatist. Right. Snark is defeatist. Yeah. Colbert wasn't snarky either. Yeah. Colbert was not at all. He was funny. Yeah. And so there's you snark is like surrealism with defeatism. I mean, bitterness. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. bitter. It shouldn't be bitter. It should be fun. Yeah. Fun always wins. I don't know what it means, but it's provocative. <laughs> I don't know if it's uh, even that provocative. It's like what your three-year-old would tell you. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I like it. JD, if someone, uh, if someone in Silicon Valley asks who's the most earnest, intellectual, uh, entrepreneur, I think, uh, I think someone might have to say you. Oh, oh I was about to say Eric Tornberg. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to this podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you so much for hosting me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 